Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. You're listening to a talk recorded on November 3rd, 2018 by Mitchell Morris, professor of musicology at UCLA. Dr. Morris discusses Hansel and Gretel, asking, is it Wagner for kids? Or what is Humperdinck's fairy tale style? Hey, y'all. I am glad to be talking about Hansel and Gretel. Um, I will probably be saying a number of things that some of y'all have heard before, so I hope it's not going to be too repetitive. But this actually hooks into a really important set of topics that I have actually touched on for years that has everything in the world to do with the way that 19th century German opera proceeds. And so I'll be invoking some things that may be familiar to you. I call this Wagner for kids because it addresses a very specific problem after Wagner's death. That problem was that German opera seemed to lack the ability to create new works that people were interested in for a while. We usually, when we teach the operatic canon in university, we typically don't talk about Hansel and Gretel. But Hansel and Gretel is the only German language opera between Parsifal and, I will say, uh, Strauss's Salome to hold the stage anywhere outside Germany. There are a few pieces in the German-speaking lands in this period that got done a bit. Uh, There is this kind of almost surrealistically odd opera called Der Evangeliman about this essentially holy fool who was jailed for crime he didn't commit and then wanders around as a mendicant preacher singing folk songs with children. It's extremely sentimental and it's the sort of horrible treacly sort of thing that makes you not surprised to find out that the author was later on an ardent Nazi. It's one of those sort of gingerbready complicated things, you know? Um, But really Hansel and Gretel is the one piece in this in this space to succeed in holding the stage. Part of the reason, to be frank, is that it has that rarefied position that we associate with two other pieces, notably Comrie von Weber's Der Freischutz and also The Nutcracker. It's a children's holiday special. It's usually done at that time, and its seasonality is one of the things that's preserved it. But the fact that it is aimed at children is also part of why it really succeeded in changing Wagnerian style in particular ways. Now, when you read things about it, it's all going to say, well, it's Wagnerian, Wagnerian. What does that mean? I propose to try to get to that question a little bit today, because it is Wagnerian, but not in all of the ways you might be expecting. So we start by talking about what Wagnerism could possibly mean in the wake of the rise of Bayreuth as an institution and Wagner's establishment of his particular canonical operas, the 10 that we typically see nowadays. Of those, it's really important to note that they don't all sound the same. They're not even all the same genre. Famously, when we classify Wagner's operas, we say, well, the first three operas that still hold the stage are romantic operas. Those are The Flying Dutchman, uh, Tannhäuser in either version, and Lohengrin. 
After that, something else is going on. Wagner himself said, ah, these operas I'm working on are not operas. They are music dramas. They have a different sort of ontology. They're not the same thing as opera, which I spurn as an Italian and French abomination. This is true kulturlich opera. Uh, this is, you know, dramatic, dramatic stuff that the music is participating in. It's not just decoration. There's a whole story we could tell about Germans and Kultur, but we're going to spare that because the crucial point is that this also is connected to changes in musical style. And in the late 19th century, the romantic operas, those early three, were not particularly influential on other composers. Humperdinck was not aspiring to write another Tannhäuser. He was aspiring to write something maybe a little closer to the ring, some people think, but that's not the case. Um, because you may know, I don't know if anybody's mentioned this yet today, but Humperdinck participated in Bayreuth very importantly, involved in the first performances of Parsifal. And Parsifal is distinctively different from all the other music dramas. It, just for convenience sake, we'll say that there are three possible sets of strategies that were most influential in this late 19th century period. Let's say there is a set of issues associated with Tristan und Isolde. There is a set of issues associated with the ring in all of its sprawling grandeur. And there are a set of issues associated with Parsifal. Each one of these three actually approaches music and the representation of emotion and drama in slightly different ways. Of the three, the two that I want to focus on are Tristan and Parsifal because they're really convenient poles for this. Now, when we say Wagnerian, we usually mean some of the following cluster of things that seem to characterize his opera. First of all, there's the principle of the leitmotif, the idea that you have a musical fragment which will be associated with a lot of different things. It's a mistake to think it's like a postage stamp that means one single thing. It never is that semantically focused. The, the spear that Wotan uses, the yum, bum, 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 bum. Is his spear, absolutely. It is also his role as the god of contracts, which is what has got him into the terrible situation that means that the ring is entirely his fault. It associated with law, it's associated with masculinity, it's associated with a bunch of concepts that evolve over the course of the four operas. Every time you hear it new, you're hearing it differently for two reasons. First of all, the dramatic impact has changed because of accumulation. One of the things famously observed about Die Valkyrie, for instance, is Wotan has a giant narrative in the second act where he tells Brunhilde what you think you saw in Das Rheingold. But if you compare what you actually saw in Das Rheingold and what he says, you realize he's lying. He's misrepresenting his motives and his actions, and you know that because you saw it happen differently. And the music participates in his deceptions. This is important because we're accustomed to believing music always tells the truth, right? We get this from the movies, which are borrowing Wagnerian dramaturgy. Whatever is going on on screen, Elizabeth Taylor may be saying this, but if the music's saying something different, you know there's something at stake and you should believe the music after all. Um, it's the famous joke whenever there's a slasher film. You say, why are you opening that door? You can't hear the music, can you? you if you heard the music, you would leave that door shut and run away. <laughs> 
Um, those kinds of things, that notion of music as a kind of noumenal truth was really important to Wagner, uh, particularly because he could then violate it in various dramatically appropriate ways. That's part of what leitmotifs do, but they also do it not just by appearing at dramatically important or textually important moments, they get woven into the music so that they're doing things different in the music itself as well. They're acting in very different ways. I will go ahead and just cut to the chase. Humperdinck is not doing this in Hansel and Gretel. What he's doing is closer to what my old teacher Joseph Kerman would have called a reminiscence motif. Yeah, things show back up. You hear things later in the opera that you've heard before and they are important and they are cumulative, but they are more like stamps. They don't get woven into the texture the same way Wagner would do. They're actually calling cards. They're places much more like you'd expect in a movie where, oh, it's Darth Vader, here's the tune. You know, that's actually their function here because Humperdinck's point is closer in some ways to what Verdi would do with this. They're not trying to make this metaphysical argument through the music about that particular issue. They're after other things. So leitmotif is not what makes this Wagnerian, despite what you may read. It's not actually working in the same way. Second, we might think of Wagner's taste for what he liked to call Sprechgesang. If you listen to any of The Ring, or if you listen to Tristan, or for that matter, Parsifal, there will be passages where if you cut the orchestra out and just tried to play the vocal line, it would be boring. It would be totally without interest because half of the time the impression of melody that you get from Wagner is because the voice is doing something relatively static but the music is moving around under it. It's a trick that you know from other kinds of music. Anybody know Beethoven's Seventh Symphony? The beautiful second movement with that gorgeous theme, which if you take out the harmony is dum, 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 dum. It's like do run, run, run for orchestra. <laughs> um, that's because one of the great discoveries of the early 19th century is that a melody doesn't have to do all the moving itself. If its context moves, it's as if the melody moved as well. And that's one of the keys to Sprechgesang. Wagner understands that you get an overwhelming impression of melody by dividing the work of melody between voice and orchestra. It means that singers have to be virtuosic but in a very different way from somebody who's singing Norma where that's really where the orchestra's like we are going to step back and we're going to sort of do hands behind you and sort of let you have your space because you're going to do the main work. In Wagner's case it's going to be shared all the time and it's going to be moving back and forth between the pit and the stage. It's never going to be left in a specific place. When this happens in the movies, a really important scholar of film music named Robin Stilwell says it happens in the movies where you think it's in the frame and then it moves out of the frame and then it moves back in the frame. She calls that the fantastical gap because all kinds of mysterious things happen when you don't know where the music is sitting from one moment to another. Does Humperdinck do this? Only to a very limited extent. And again, this is for specific reasons that I'm going to come to in a little bit that have to do with the nature of the songs he's writing. Next, we have the question of narrative. Is this Wagnerianly narrative-like? The answer is no. Um, famously, the way that the ring worked is that Wagner was working on the end of it. He was working on what would become Siegfried and go to Demerung. And he realized there was a vast amount of backstory he needed to tell. So he's writing gigantic wordy flashbacks about stuff and he thinks, well that's not very dramatic, gosh. 
What am I going to do? I know I'll write a prequel. And then I'll write a prequel to the prequel, and boom, you've got four operas. As soon as he does that, though, he doesn't cut out any of all those narratives. They're still there. It's because of the aforementioned point. He suddenly becomes interested in what narratives do as a kind of action. And he's interested in untrustworthy narrators and untrustworthy narratives. So he needs to keep all those in there so you can compare what's not true in later stories and how people are revising their pasts as they go along from opera to opera. Humperdinck doesn't need to do that because he's telling something that is not supposed to be so psychologically dense. He doesn't need his characters to have really complicated mixed emotions and all sorts of backstory that they're trying not to reveal. They're not tricky people in Hansel and Gretel. So that's out. It's not a Wagnerian narrative. Unendliche Melodie was Wagner's term for this kind of cadenceless, going on, continuous process where you don't really get what we think of as symmetrical structures. If you think of, let's say, Mozart in The Magic Flute, you get very regular patterns. Right? It's very ordinary. It's very, very orderly. Everything tends to fall into symmetrical groups of four or three and plus five, and it's very regular in that way. In Wagner, half the time you don't know where you are unless you know the piece really, really well. It's sporadic. It's sort of spastic in a way. That's actually part of what unendliche melodie means. It can go on. It can be accumulative and additive. Again, this is not what Engelbert Humperdinck is doing. Things are bounded. There are structures and numbers and endings and beginnings, and you typically know where you are from section to section. Gosh, we're getting a little low, aren't we? We're running out of things that it could be Wagnerian. Ah, but now I'll get to the things that really are. Well, almost, hold on. We might say, well, it's chromaticism because Wagner's famous for all sorts of chromatic work, right? Yeah, there's some chromaticism in Hubert Humperdinck, but it's not the same chromaticism as you often think of when you think of Wagner. Now, let me go to the piano for a couple of minutes and tell you something that many of you know before, but let me just refresh your ears. Diatonic music, or the music that really undergirds what we think of as common practice tonality, the music that we usually think of as beginning around Bach and Handel and starting to collapse over the course of the 19th century till it is dealt mortal blows around 1905 or so, and something else seems to happen. This kind of music depended on what we know as the diatonic scale. That is a scale of seven pitches within an octave which are asymmetrically placed. As you may remember from early music theory classes or any sort of piano lessons, if you look at the keyboard, it's not a symmetrical structure. There's a group of three black keys and a group of two black keys. Some of the white keys seem squished together without black keys at all. Those asymmetries are crucial. Let's just take a basic C major scale. Julie Andrews, come to my aid. etc. Now it matters that a diatonic scale is composed of two different sizes of interval. What we call the whole tone of the whole step and its diminished minor cousin, the half step. 
it just so happens that because of training and some acoustical properties and some of the grammar and rhetoric of most musics, we tend to think that half steps have a stronger gravitational pull than whole steps. Half steps want to go somewhere. Whole steps may or may not. They are actually not picky about this. And because of that little difference, all kinds of magical things happen. What ha um, the famous example I like to use deals with harmony. Mendelssohn, as some of you may have heard me tell before, liked to give parties, but he was an early to bed kind of guy. So he would just leave. He would say, excuse me, all of you, good night, and go upstairs and go to bed. So apparently upon one occasion his friends thought, okay, we're going to get him back downstairs. And somebody sat down at the piano and did something more or less like this. And they left it. You want the resolution, don't you? Yeah. Some of you can probably just already imagine it. Someone like Schoenberg would say, well, since you can imagine it, I'm not going to give it to you because you already know that. We're going to skip it. Uh, Mendelssohn apparently comes down about 15 minutes later and plays <laughs> and then they had him back downstairs. That is the result of asymmetry. That is what asymmetry does in music. It allows you to create a kind of gravitational force that pulls you forward. If you don't have it, then you don't have the same sense of we are moving forwards in time. This is one reason why when you want dreams in various music, especially after Debussy, you use a scale that has no half steps at all. It sounds like this. Right, woo, watery or dreamy or magical. Part of the reason is without a, whole, a half step, it seems ungrounded. It floats in this way and that little shift may, means the world in this. The whole tone scale, like scale and scales like that, which are symmetrical without, whole without half steps, arise typically in the 19th century and are associated first with magic. They happen when you've got wizards, when you've got supernatural things, when you've got anything transcendental, that kind of stuff is gonna show up. Tonality based on diatonicism, that's for people. That's for people with two legs and bodies who move through space and have a kind of solidity. So when we drift towards chromaticism, we're drifting towards something a little more disembodied, a little more interior than exterior, much more about feelings maybe than about gesture and embodiment. And all of these things are really significant in why, how chromaticism is used. Wagner's most chromatic piece is, of course, Tristan und Isolde. It starts like this, if you can play that first example. Well, you have a little bit of the score, you, which you may follow or not. This is the opening of Tristan und Isolde. If I asked you to count it and you didn't see a score, you would be hopelessly lost right now. Where is the downbeat? Can you dance to this? I think not. All you can do is just sort of writhe a little bit. And right now, just writhe in little spasms and trembles.
all this tension built up and we haven't resolved a lick of it so far. And now we're just repeating things. So by this time, especially in the 1850s, you need some rest. You need to stand still somewhere. And you're not getting it. Maybe, maybe it's coming. It sounds like it's coming. Are we almost there? Oh my God, yes, yes, yes. Are we gonna arrive? Are we gonna get our get to your destination for four and a half hours. <laughs> and this is crucial. That last gesture, um, I hope that this is going to be in the same key. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Yay! That is not where you go, but that's where you were meant to go at the very beginning. If this were a Victorian parlor song, it would do something like this. <laughs> but it doesn't. What it does is it generates this constant ratcheting up of tension by not giving you what you want or by giving you only part of what you want. That's what's so glorious about the... which is part of what you wanted, but not enough to let you rest. In fact, all of this music is about this restless, surging forward motion that's really Wagner's attempt to represent physically as well as conceptually what desire feels like. Particularly, what desire feels like that can never be satisfied by anything but, well, essentially the love death. You know, this is the sort of piece when I teach undergraduates, I say, please don't tell your parents I just taught you this. Please don't. Please don't. Because there aren't many pieces I know that essentially are the equivalent of, a, you know, of a treatise on behalf of autoerotic asphyxiation. But that is what this sort of thing is. The whole point of the end of Tristan is that the best orgasm is the one that kills you. And that's a really intense and radical aspect of what Wagner is trying to do. This is not something that, that Humperdinck would have been interested in. So it's not going to need that kind of chromaticism. Chromaticism in this opera, sort of using those half steps and borrowing them from other keys, it's an incidental matter. It's something that gives you a slight flavor, but it's not being used to overwhelm you in the piece. It's more like a color. It's the sort of thing that musicologists who talk about the 19th century will sometimes refer to as purple patches. It's just the musical equivalent of somebody who's writing who decides that a gigantic Latinate polysyllable that's a bit recherche will be the perfect word right here. Um, I myself have a strong tendency to that, so I really sympathize. But it's not the same thing that's going on. What's more like part, what, what's more like uh, Humperdinck's source comes from Parsifal. Now, Parsifal does something a little different with chromaticism. In Tristan, the purpose is to make it proliferate everywhere because everything is simply saturated in this metaphysical desire all the way through. Parsifal, if you remember the story, is a very much black hats, white hats kind of story. There are good people, bad people, and Kundry. 
essentially, who wears a gray hat or sort of has two hats and keeps switching them. Um, part of this, of course, has to do with the original story. It's a crusader story, so you've definitely got, you know, Christians versus others. Um, it's no accident that Klingsor is a Muslim and his castle is the Alhambra basically. It's that's what's going on there and Kundri as the Jew is mediating between the Islamic world and Christendom in this in effect in this way. So chromaticism is going to be for all those sinister delights of all this lovely ornamentation and all these harems and all that sort of stuff that nowadays we call orientalism. Ah the exotic wicked east where such things flourish and they're terrible aren't they? Let's look some more. Um, that's what chromaticism does especially in Parsifal. By contrast when you're in wholesome land it's got to be diatonic in one way or another. And that's why not only does Wagner sequester chromaticism and diatonicism in this way, except in Kundry's case because she plays for both camps, it also borrows materials that are meant to hit you, the presumably German audience, square in your historical solar plexus. Let's take a little passage from the overture to Parsifal, the prelude, sorry, to Parsifal that will illustrate. We're sort of finishing this big, lush, beautiful chant-like thing with lots and lots of harps and strings, and we're floating in midair. And it just gets higher and drifts like, almost like an echo, way up in the cathedral space. But what's this thing that we're about to hear? We change orchestration, and we hear this. is something, well, I grew up singing it in church sometimes. We called it the Dresden Amen. Um, and it is actually a commonplace in a lot of Protestant churches is one of the things that you can use. Dresden Amen, because it is associated with the German city of Dresden. It was used most notably before this in Mendelssohn in his Reformation Symphony. Yet another example of Wagner stealing from Jews he will later slander. Um, <laughs> its importance is its extremely pristine diatonic nature. It's purely diatonic. It's set in four-part choral harmony. It's a thing to be sung. It just screams Protestant church music. And that's really important because even though the opera is a kind of weird pseudo-Catholic mismatch, misunderstood, it's also got heavy Protestant overtones because Wagner is aiming squarely for that kind of an audience. This is one of the examples of what the 19th century thinks religion sounds like. And you know, they have very distinct ideas about how religion ought to sound. Um, what's interesting about this is though it's diatonic, Wagner is willing to offer a place for chromaticism, but only between diatonic segments. You don't mix your, your chromaticism in with something like this. You just use diatonic blocks that are suddenly chromatically related. Let's keep listening and you'll hear it happen. Uh, related tune coming up. Diatonic though. <laughs> Thank you. 
did we go here next? something like this. You're not in a stable place, except locally. This way of using diatonic and chromatic music is one of the things that I think is the source for what Humperdinck is doing. Because you will notice there's lots of really strictly diatonic stuff in this opera. It's just that it can have oblique relationships between the different sections. And that's part of what's going on. Another thing that will make it clearly Wagnerian has to do with Humperdinck's taste in orchestration. Now, this is a separate topic all on its own, and it really deserves a really intense study. But in the 19th century, we see a number of composers who are really substantial innovators in how you use the orchestra, uh, not just how you deploy the instruments, but also what instruments you're incorporating. The three gigantic figures that are important in this history are, first of all, Berlioz, second of all, Wagner, and third, Rimsky-Korsakov. They each have such distinctive approaches and are so original to their interest in orchestration that their particular style colors vast amounts of music after that. Um, you wouldn't have anything Hollywood without Wagner and Rimsky-Korsakov, in fact, because you need both of them to make any sense of a studio era score. That's where those practices come from. So it sounds Wagnerian in part, not because of the usual things that we think of when we read explanations, but because the orchestra is being used Wagnerianly, if you will. And last but not least, there is an interest not shared, by the way, by most composers who were not German in what we're going to call mythos in mythological stuff in general. As it happens this week, as I was thinking about this talk, I was reading a little book by a noted scholar of religion and a Sanskritologist named Wendy Doniger, who teaches at the University of Chicago. Um, and she has a little book on mythology called The Implied Spider, where she's trying to talk about what a myth exactly is. And one of the points that she insists on is that myths are not actually entire plots. They aren't necessarily stories where you get lots of motivation and things like that. They're actually these sort of abstract templates of action. Like she describes the Garden of Eden as a snake and a woman give a piece of fruit to a man. That's about as minimal as you're going to get there. All of the other stuff, the stuff that you get 
in Genesis, the stuff that you get from Milton, the stuff you get from parodies and versions of it may change from thing to thing. What is common to them is this basic structure, but variations exist everywhere. And that's a crucial characteristic of myth. Myth is not one single thing. There are always multiple versions of it. There are different tellings that accent different things. Sometimes you'll get a story where two versions of the same account are completely contradictory. That's okay, too. And this can help us substantially to think about Hansel and Gretel. Uh, the, the version I learned, it was a stepmother, not a mother. The version I learned, she said, we need to get rid of these kids because we're starving. Let's go abandon them somewhere. Now, this has an ugly historical reality, you know. Um, there's a really wonderful medieval historian who wrote a book a number of years ago called The Kindness of Strangers, which was a study of child abandonment in the Middle Ages. Because you see, abortion was illegal in canon law. It was a sin after the quickening, that is to say, after the first, tri first trimester, you can't do it. First, before that, it doesn't count because it's not a, a baby yet, according to Thomas Aquinas. But after that, no abortions. However, there's no law against leaving your children at the city gate. None whatsoever. And you had lots of cases of desperately poor people leaving the kids, just dumping them off because they can't take care of them. And that's actually one of the realities behind Hansel and Gretel as a story. They're abandoning the child. But, of course, one of the interesting things about the bowdlerization that's performed in the opera is that in the original original that the Brothers Grimm bowdlerized themselves, it was the mother who's saying, let's abandon the kids. And they're like, that's too much. We have to make it a stepmom. It's just impossible otherwise. And then for, um, for the late 19th century in that particular culture, that's really not acceptable. So it has to be a kind of an accident. But that kind of variation is exactly what myth does. And one of the ways we know this comes from the most important academic activity of 19th century Germany, the field that we call philology. Now, philology is essentially for us several different fields now. It's literary criticism, it's speculative anthropology, it's historical linguistics all squished up together. In late 18th and early 19th century Germany, it was the master discipline. It was the one discipline that seemed to do everything that German scholars needed. Remember, there is no Germany. There are multiple Germanies united only by a vague sense that, oh, we speak sort of the same language. Shouldn't we have a country too, like the French or like the English? Well, they didn't. You know, they didn't until 1870, just like the Italians did until 1870. And what's worse, if you're thinking from the point of view of a German, is not only do we not have a country, we don't have an illustrious, glorious past. We don't have an epic. We don't have an Iliad. We don't have an Odyssey. What are we going to do? Well, if you're English, you turn to someone like James McPherson, who invents a fictitious uh, Celtic poet named O'Sheen, who is the Homer of the Celts, and you make up lots and lots of poetry um, and sort of represent it as discovered poetry from this ancient bard. If you're a German, you notice that historical linguistics can help you. You notice that we have a method suddenly which lets you compare different languages and find ways to working back to the word that must have been shared by languages and then changed historically. For instance, pater. In Sanskrit, pitar. In English, father. 
So then you have to say, well, how the hell did these change? And as it happens, that's the perfect word for me to have chosen because Jacob Grimm, the elder of the Grimm brothers, who you have a little bit of discussion in your packet, I'm glad to see, is the proponent of what became known as Grimm's Law. Grimm's Law is a linguistic way of describing what happens in the Germanic languages uh, in transferring from Indo-European into Germanic proper. You see, what happened is uh, Indo-European had probably th three series of consonants, and the one that was P turned into F. The one that was T turned into TH. The one that was K turned into CH. Uh, the G turned into K, et cetera, et cetera. And this is how we get from Pisces to fish. This is how we get from pater to father, et cetera. The, this is a really crucial sound change that tends to hold all over Germanic languages. And if there are exceptions, you can find reasons for the exceptions. This was such a powerful intellectual tool that when the philologists said, well, you know, also in studying these words and things like that, we can deduce things about their culture as well. Suddenly you have a method for finding the fragments of a long lost Germanic culture, a long lost Germanic mythology, a long lost Germanic literature. So, Scholars like the Grimm's specialized in finding old texts, taking Middle German and trying to understand the historical development of Middle German, comparing Middle German texts that survived to the Icelandic Eddas, doing this kind of historical work to reconstruct a kind of, of pan-Germanic past. It helps that the Grimm's were both pan-Germanists anyway, and one of their political goals was to try to imagine a united Germany somehow. Um, and so Jakob Grimm, the elder of the brothers, uh, who was the most active scholar, um, pioneered things like, well, one of his books is called Deutsche Grammatik. It is the first historical comparative grammar of Germanic languages. Um, he and his brother collaborated on the Deutsches Wörterbuch, essentially the first kind of OED. Um, a lot of languages don't have the equivalent of the Oxford English Dictionary. The Germans do. The Deutsches Wörterbuch is a magnificent historical historical, etymologically um, erudite dictionary of German. Um, they uh, uh, Jakob Grimm uh, wrote Deutsche Mythologie, or German mythologies, which was an attempt to reconstruct primitive Germanic mythology. And one of their greatest hits that they wrote specifically to popularize this was Kinder und Hausmärchen, or the child and house tales, fairy tales, in other words, the original Grimm Brothers collection um, released in 1812. The, the discussion in your handout is really very good. It points out they bowderized things, they weren't really super particular about historical scruples. They were collecting from a lot of different places because it was as much making a culture as deciphering the remnants of a culture. And that's a really important aspect. They released another set of these that never became as popular um, called Deutsche Sagen just a little bit later. Now, part of why fairy tales mattered is because the prevailing theory was that a fairy tale is a decayed piece of mythology that has been transformed from its mythical status into just a sort of random little story, a little legend. So by collecting these, you are also contributing to this mythological world that we're trying to get back. And that makes this a central endeavor for anybody who's an active, sort of a cultural activist in Germany in this period.
I've mentioned, though many years ago, Wagner could read Middle German. Wagner had a philological collection in his library. Wagner was, you know, not half bad as an amateur philologist himself, and he deeply, deeply believed it was important. It's not just that they were convenient that he chose medieval stories and mythology all the time. This was a musical contribution to the common effort of the philologists. And that's what Humperdinck is picking up on too. But instead of using, if Wagner is musicalizing Deutsche Mythologie, Humperdinck, of course, is mythologizing Kinder und Hausmärchen. That's the actual difference between them. It's the same project still. It's just got a slightly different aim and trajectory. One that, of course, fits in perfectly with his sister's goals. She's an haute bourgeois woman. One of the things she's interested in is a kind of sociable entertainment. And uh, that's really important. My grandmother, I think I've mentioned in here, didn't go to college because she was a genteel Southern girl from Alabama. They sent her to finishing school. She studied piano and elocution because what they imagined is that she would make a good marriage and entertain the way that women did in the 19th century. That's the world this comes from. That's how Humperdinck is shaping this piece. It's perfect that she said, can you write folk songs for me? And that helps explain one more aspect of it, the last thing that I want to talk about for just a minute, which is that, yes, things are coming from Parsifal. One little thing that I'll just point out is that when emotions in this opera seem to be complicated, when somebody's deceiving somebody or somebody's conflicted about something or somebody's trying to sort of do something a little dicey, it's going to be in a triple meter. If they're being honest and forthcoming and simple, it's going to be in a duple meter. And Parsifal does this a fair amount as well, which is probably where Humperdinck was borrowing from it. But as far as the tunes go, the tunes are folk-like in that they tend to be symmetrical, they tend to be repetitive, they tend to be very singable, they tend to be diatonic, they tend to be conjunct, you know, they're actually not no huge leaps and things like that. Even when they're high, they sound like they could be done by someone who was not a serious hardcore professional. They're not virtuosic in that sense. And the ornaments, the decorations, all are conventions that we would know from places like dance music, hymns and you know, popular songs, children's music. And it's the tension between that kind of material and the orchestration and the slight slippage of those sort of chromatic areas that gives this its particular quality. It's sort of timbre, sort of larger speaking in a way. It's also the thing I will sort of end by saying um, that leads me to think of this opera whenever I hear it. I don't hear Wagner as much as I hear a really complicated set of German pasts and a German future. That is to say, what I hear as well as Wagner, I hear Mozart. I hear the magic flute, especially in the construction of the folk music. It's not very far from Papageno. It's not very far from Pamina and Tamino. In some ways, places aren't very far from all those boring priests singing all that Masonic hymn music. Um, I think that the magic flute is a really powerful influence on the construction of this. Equally, I think Weber's Der Freischütz, which has huge amounts of peasantness and folkness everywhere, is also part of the mix that's sort of underlying this piece. And especially when the kids are singing, I can't hear anything sometimes but Octavian. I can't hear anything but the end of Rosenkavalier. Uh, it's 
probable, I think, that when Strauss was working on Rosenkavalier, this piece wasn't entirely far from his memory. He did, of course, pronounce it a really wonderful piece, and I think it continued to matter to him in these ways. Um, I want to just sort of ground my comments about folk in one tiny clip. You've already heard the evening prayer, which is a wonderful thing, so I don't have to do that. I want to play something from a little earlier when Gretel is saying, oh, let's dance because dance is one of those places where Wagner cannot go in important ways. And it's a place that Humperdinck can make his own. This is a little spot early on. that kind of accessibility that makes it a wonderful children's opera, and it's that kind of directness that Humperdinck is so good at in this piece that is probably what lets it hold the stage and gives him a space blessedly separate from the Wagnerian tradition. So with that, I thank you for your patience and have a good lunch. been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.